Radio. Theology of the Body, Part 1. Eros and Desire. A talk by Paul Allard at the Immaculata Mission School 2017, held at the Launceston Church Grammar School in Tasmania. All right. We're going to look at sexuality. It's a complex topic. It's a big topic. We're going to be talking frankly, honestly, but we're going to bring hope. Jesus died on that cross so that we could have hope, that we could bring all our messy lives and get them healed. Anyone want to guess what the main reason people leave the church today? My experience is they want to be sexually free and the church is making them feel bad and uncomfortable. They'll just blot it out. They stop going to Mass. Once you stop going to Mass, by the way, you stop praying first. Then you stop going to Mass. And then you drift out to sea. The Lord wants to rescue us. It's been said that All the social evils of the world come from the breakdown of the man-woman union. The biggest destroyer of marriage is not poor communication. It's not lack of relationship skills. It's not financial problems. The biggest destroyer of marriage is lust. I doubt there's been anyone in this room who has not been affected by it. We all know marriage failure, at least directly or either indirectly. And our society has been conned and we worship idols. Worshipping idols is not just carving some statue into a tree and worshipping it. Idolism is rife today. We worship money and we worship sex. And we need to name it and be honest. Really name it. It's a serious issue because there are people today who are prepared to kill to have an orgasm. We need to be blunt and name it. That's what it boils down to. Let's be honest. If you don't believe me, just look at the 92 million people who have been aborted. 92 million. And all this has come since the sexual revolution, the freedom. Freedom. It's addiction, not freedom. And we're not going to get self-righteous here. There's nobody in this room, maybe the priest, but nobody, and certainly not me, who can stand up and say we haven't sinned against purity. I've failed, and I've failed miserably. But the Lord has been good and has rescued me and pulled me back. We want to talk about theology of the body. What is theology of the body? Well, it's a term that John Paul termed. And the rumour has it when he came to Rome to vote for the new Pope after Paul VI died, he was actually finishing off this great work of theology of the body, which he was going to put into a book. And had he never been elected Pope, probably would have just been another Polish book on the bookshelf that few people would have known. 
But as providence would have it, you know what happened? He became Pope. So he's got this massive work. What does he do with this massive? And it's solid stuff, right? It's very solid. What, what does he do with it? So you know what he does? Every Wednesday, the Pope does a little talk to people who come. If you've been to Rome, you go to Wednesday, you see him, stands at the window, and blah, blah, right? He decided, he gives a little catechesis session. He decided to give the theology of the body in this catechesis session. So all of a sudden now, instead of being a book lost on the shelf, it now is kind of papal stamp on it. It has a certain authority and exposure that it never would have had before. And you can feel for the people who visited the Pope during those 129 lectures. That's how long it took to cover the whole book. But what on earth is he talking about? But um, Anyway, it's, it's been a massive work and it's a great work. And we'll be unpacking it for many years. It'll be like Augustine's writing. 300 years' times, we'll still be unpacking John Paul's rich work. George Weigel, he wrote um, the biography of John Paul II. He said this about the theology of the body. Just so you get an idea, this thing, the theology of the body, is huge. And um, many years ago, I was blessed to study with Christopher West. He came out to Sydney 2004 when we did a, a winter intensive. And after a couple of days, I said to him, you know, the way you're talking, it sounds like theology of the body is, is not just about sex, it's about... It's about everything. And he said, stand up and say that to everybody. <laughs> that, but it was an enlightened moment. So that's the thing. It's big. To give you an idea, this is what George Weigel said about The theology of the body is one of the boldest reconfigurations of Catholic theology in centuries. It has barely begun to shape the church's theology, preaching, and religious education. When it does it will compel a dramatic development of thinking about virtually every major theme in the creed. Not in sexuality, in the creed. These 129 addresses taken together constitute a kind of theological time bomb ready to go off with dramatic consequences sometime in the third millennium of the church. When that happens... Perhaps in the 21st century, the theology of the body may well be seen as a critical moment, not only in Catholic theology, but in the history of modern thought. They're big statements. Why did John Paul II write Theology of the Body? We back up a little bit. Pope Paul VI, in the 60s, the contraceptive pill was invented. Everyone was asking the Pope, is it all right for Catholics to use the contraceptive pill? Many bishops are saying, yes, of course it is. Of course it is. You watch. The Pope will say, yes, yes, yes. Don't worry, you know. So Pope Paul VI took this responsibility very seriously. It was to be the, the last encyclical he ever did. So he turned to a young Polish bishop who had a lot of experience on sexuality, on philosophy, on working with young people, married people. Carol Wojtyla the future John Paul II. And he says to him, what do you think? A lot of the stuff that went into that document was formed by Carol Wojtyla. So it gets published, and it's the exact opposite to what many of the people in the church think. The Pope says, no, contraception is not allowed by the church. Caused havoc. It was the most unpopular encyclical ever written. Um, and it was very thin. It was quite thin. 
John Paul, when he became Pope, well, even before he became Pope, one of the things he wanted to do was to explain why contraception is not a good thing. So he writes Theology of the Body, a book this thick, and he gets right to it only in the last closing chapters. So it's not easy to answer with a really convincing argument because you've got to go right back and look at the big picture and start again. So that's, um, that's what John Paul did. It challenges us today. It really does. There's never been a time when our sexuality has been so twisted, so distorted. And you know what? You hear on the radio, oh, sex therapist, so-and-so, so-and-so, and they start to talk and you think, oh, my goodness, you don't know anything about sex. They don't. They haven't got a clue. If you want to know about sex, you go to the person who created it, God. And if there's one thing I want to get you, if you can walk away with just this today, that sex is holy, I'll be happy. The Lord will be happy. I hope you go away with more than that. But we've got to start to rewrite the foundations, okay? God is a loving Father. He's come to liberate us. If you think that the the church is against you when it comes to sexuality, you don't know what sexuality is. And let's be honest, that's probably most of us. The church is not against you. Get that clear. If you want happiness in your sex life, embrace theology of the body. And someone said the truth, I think it was actually John Paul, said the truth of the theology of the body is verified in the lives of the people who aren't living it. In other words, look at the disaster around us. It is everywhere. We have wounds. We have, oh my goodness. I know, I got my wounds. We've all got our wounds. We all know family, friends. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're going to get freedom. And it's their deep wounds, so it's not a magic bullet fix. It's a progressive fix. But like the tree, it will blossom and grow in fullness of time, produce beautiful, rich fruit. Why, why is this term theology of the body? What does theology mean? The classic, you know, faith-seeking understanding. Of the body. So faith tells us something about God. Theology tells us something about God. Of the body. So John Paul's saying the body tells us something about who God is. Did you realize that? Your very body is a huge sign that says something about who God is. It doesn't matter whether you're married, single, consecrated, celibate. Your sexuality is crucial to understanding who God is, who you are, and your role in life. If you have a body, then theology of the body is for you. Now, John Paul approaches this. If you would, someone said to you, the Pope's got a real thick book about sexuality. Oh, yeah, okay. Do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do That's not John Paul's approach at all. He doesn't get into the rules and regulations mentality. Some people say, well, how far can I go before I break the rules? 
I'm sure you've asked it in confession. I'm sure the priests have heard that question asked to them every second day, right? That's just, uh, John Paul abhors that type of mentality. That's not the approach at all. John Paul's approach is, the question is this for John Paul. What is the truth about my sexuality that sets me free to love? And when you see this, and we'll get a little taste of it, but the more you see it, the more you say, I want to be loved like that. That's the way I want to be loved. Women in particular, they feel this passionately. They've been so used and abused. That's the way they want to be loved, with dignity. And gentlemen, we'll, we'll have some things to say to you as well. John Paul takes us back to the original plan of God. In the beginning. Sister, where did you get that song from? Is that, is that a Theology of the Body song? Oh my goodness, there's so much theology. I went, I couldn't believe it. Naked without shame, in the beginning, at the cross, mercy every day. I thought, this is it. <laughs> this is it. If we want a formula, it's that song. My goodness. Our sexuality then enables us to understand the body as a sign. You see, God is not a single person. God is Trinity. You know how John Paul explained it? He said, God is a family. He didn't say like a family. He said, is a family. Now, you know, remember every analogy that we talk about with God is always lacking, right? So we've got to be careful when we say lots of I'll be saying things today. And if you run too much with the analogies, you can, huh? So we've kind of got to put in checkpoints every now and then just so we keep it. But which, where the analogy is like God is like family, right? You've got the Father, right? The Father just loves the Son, right? Everything about the Son, the Father loves. So what does he do? He self-donates everything he has. He gives to the Son. And the Son, he just loves the Father. Right? He takes all this love, and what does he do? He gives everything back to the Father. That's why they're equal, because they just give, right? And this love is so real that we call it the Holy Spirit, right? So in family life, the husband loves the wife. The wife loves the husband. And this love's so real that nine months later, they've got to give it a name, right? So, you get the idea? We're not saying God's sexual. Please, let's, we're never ever saying that or implying that. But some of the analogies I'll throw up might make you think that. But let's, if I don't say it, make sure you check it in your own mind. Why are we all so fascinated about sex? Because God put it in there. It's in our design. We hunger. We ache for it. And we'll have more to say about that hunger. So it's through the human body, the visible human body, that the invisible mystery of God is revealed. Why is this love life of the, of the Holy Trinity so important? Because we're called to be a part of it. You heard of the, the church is the bride of Christ? When we go to heaven, we won't, we won't have husbands and wives because we'll be married to Christ. Right? Marriage is the sign, the symbol of where we're going. 
we're going to be married to Christ and we're going to have eternal happiness and bliss like you cannot possibly believe. Let's put it bluntly. Take all the thrills you've had in every orgasm in your life. It's nothing compared to the love and the glory that you see of God. We're not saying God's sexual. We're talking about the bliss. We're talking about the fullness, the fullness, the, the love, the unity, the oneness. That's what we're talking about. Holy, holy love. And you see, if you miss that, Satan will pull you to the side and get you caught up in all the other stuff, and it's ugly. So authentic holiness does not reject the body. Sex is not an invention of Satan. There's a popular book out there, it seems to imply. It's not true. I grew up kind of the old school where the spirit was good, but the body was bad. Uh-uh, that's, uh, that's not right. The body's not bad. You know, Christianity differs from all the other religions in the world. Why? Because God became man, the incarnation. So if the body's bad, the incarnation is, is wrong, which we know it's not wrong, right? So the incarnation verifies when God took flesh, he verified the dignity of the body. And Mary is the center, the epicenter of this theology of the body. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John Paul, Theology of the Body, he's written this massive book, right? If you're not a theologian, quite, I wouldn't recommend you go out and buy it because if you're, unless you're a theologian, you're really not going to get it. But there are lots of great writers out there who have taken that step to take it and represent it in a, in a way that's digestible for people who aren't theologians. One of many guys, there are many people who do this, Christopher West. Um, he has his critics, but I reckon the guy is very brilliant in taking a very complex message and making it digestible to the people in the street, like myself, right? As I mentioned, I had the blessing of being able to study with him in 2004 for a week. And then he, I saw him again when he came to Sydney World Youth Day 2008. Some of you might have seen him. Every time they put him in a hall, he'd pack it out. They put him in a bigger hall and he'd pack it out. They had 3,000 people coming to his talks. And so he came again just a few months ago. And I thought, I'm going to go and see him. I'd be interesting to see how he's matured over these years and how he's taken this message and how he's delivered it. And um, he spent three and a half hours presenting a very simple concept. So he didn't try and bite off too big, just a very simple. And he used all, very clever, he used music and film and arts and all sorts of things to present it. Brilliantly done. But he kind of inspired me. And then Mother rang me up and said, we do a talk on theology of the body. And so I think the Holy Spirit must have been working so I said, all right, I'm going to take what Christopher West did, take the essence of what he did in that. He calls it the core seminar. Core is just Latin for heart. So we're talking about things of the heart here. So what I really loved was the, he took this approach, the three Ds. And I love these kind of things, right? This is great. The first D is desire. What is it in our heart that we ache for? It's 
we've got to tap into this because if we don't get it, we don't really understand what's going on in ourselves. This is a really important thing. In your own sexuality, you find yourself doing things, you think, well, stop and ask, why am I doing this? What is motivating me? You might say, oh, well, I'm going out with this guy because he's really good looking and I kind of like him and all that. Okay, but maybe you've been out a couple of times and it wasn't very good. Why are you persisting? Ask yourself and keep going. And then ask, well, why that? Say, well, why that? And why? Keep going until you get to the true motivation behind why we do things. It's sometimes it's painful. See a few heads nodding. This is good. This is people who have done this journey and the huge growth comes from it. And in matters of sexuality, it's just so important. Anyway, desire. We're going to look at desire. This desire is so strong. If you don't, you cannot suppress it. If you don't channel it somewhere, it will just explode out and you'll be caught in crazy behavior. And you'll ask, why am I doing this? Because you haven't touched into this desire to understand it. The second is design. This desire has been put there by God. Why? Because of our destiny. What's our destiny? This tells us. The narrow road. See the sun. That's heaven. That's eternal life. That's union with God. And we're going to launch our desire in this direction. If we allow our desires to start drifting left and right, mess, disaster. We want to go this way and we go via the cross. And, of course, we go with Mary and Jesus. So this, this is beautiful. This just sums up beautifully what we're doing. This is our, what we're trying to do. So let's have a look at each of these now. Desire. What is desire? Well, the definition of desire, an expressly felt yearning for something that promises to fill a void. Did you catch that? Fill a void. A longing for that which promises satisfaction in its attainment. You've got a void and you are committed to the belief that it can be fulfilled. That's crazy when you think about it. It's not when you realise God stamped it into you. And whether you're a Christian or whether you're an atheist, that's bedded in who you are as a human person. We've, we've got to deal with it. The Latin for desire translates to long for, to wish for, to hope for, to expect. The original sense may also mean to look to the stars, await what the stars may bring. Look to the stars, look to the sun. Okay, question. And this is a great question to do even just beyond this. You might want to reflect on it in your share group or your private time. Think of a time in your life when your heart was pierced by something breathtakingly beautiful. What do you remember? What sentiments in, it, uh, in your heart did it arouse and waken? I remember my mate saying to me, he, he wasn't his. He was a very, um, very head guy, very intellectual guy, brilliant guy. But when his son was born, I just saw him melt. 
And I never seen him speak from the heart so much. He said, oh, Paul, he said, when my son was born, it's the most beautiful thing. I just, he was lost for words. He's just carrying on, you know. I think, huh, this is Peter? What's, What's going on? But it touched his heart, you know. For myself, I asked myself this question. I remember we used to have a Christian band. We used to do praise songs and things. We got invited to go, some of you know Sydney, it went Hurstful, the main street of Hurstful, right? Train line behind, buses everywhere, trains, shopping centre, people. It's a little, little park. And here we are playing music and you think, who is listening? Who can hear us, you know? We're playing and all of a sudden, I can't explain it to this day. Everything just went still. And I'm, I'm play, I play drums. I'm playing and I'm, oh God. I said to the other musicians, can you, can you feel that? And he goes, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. What, it was, it, I was a, what are these? These are little windows that we peek into our desire. We peek into those God moments, if you like. Where God touches our heart. And um, so have a think. Is there one for you? Now, it, they can be a bit silly and a bit crazy, but they have value because, again, they help us ask the question, why am I doing this? What? And you, we keep our why, why? And we keep coming back to a really deep desire that's put in there by God, not smothered by Satan. So I want to play you something. Um, some of you will know this. It's a little bit weird, frankly. But um, it only goes for just over a minute. The original version goes three and a half minutes. You, you think, when you see it, you'll think, I couldn't sit through three and a half minutes of that. But one minute is enough, right? And this was a guy who um, was walking through one of the national parks in America. And he saw this rainbow. You know what I'm, some of you know? On Facebook? The double rainbow guy, have you some of you nodding? And he has this God moment where he starts videoing it, and we just journey with him for a minute. That's all I can handle. Uh, and and you'll see. But there's there's some very interesting things in it. So let's. Um... Whoa, that's a full rainbow, all the way. Double rainbow. Oh my God. It's a double rainbow all the way. Whoa, that's so intense. Whoa, man. Whoa. 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 Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Whoa. Oh, wow. Look at that. It's starting to even look like a triple rainbow. Oh my God, it's full on. Double rainbow all the way across the sky. Oh my God. Oh my God. Mm. Oh. 
So you see what I mean? It's a bit crazy. But there's some profound things in there we can learn from, right? Oh, by the way, this guy, two million people, this went viral, right? Two million people have, have seen this clip. Two million and twenty, two million two hundred now, whatever you are. But he went on television, all the talkback shows and all that. And the first thing everyone asked him was, were you on some kind of drugs? What were you smoking? Were, were you on alcohol? He says, no, I was not. He said, I just had, he's actually Indian, red Indian background. He said, I had a very moment of the spirit. And um, they, he said, I, I've been paid to go on um, these talk shows and I take money for that. He said, but some of the big advertising companies wanted to actually buy the clip and give me huge amounts of money for it and, and, and have the copyright. And he said, no, I wouldn't sell it. So the guy is, is, is genuine, right? He wouldn't, he wouldn't sell it out because for him it was, a, it was a deeply spiritual moment. And I love the bit at the end where he says, what does this mean? Oh, that's where you've got to get to, where you're touching your desire and you're going deep and you're in awe. What does this mean? It means we're destined for God because he's put this desire in us that is so strong we can't snuff it out. All right. You know, and desire brings hope too. How can people like Colby and that and Father Joseph Kentonick, years and years in, in solitary confinement, how can they do that? They keep hope because they have a desire in their heart that is beyond this world. It's in this world, grounded in this world, sure, but its ultimate fulfillment is bigger. Beauty has the power to wound us. It, it can capture us, but it can also wound us because it can give us an ache. If we have this desire and it's not fulfilled, we get an ache in the heart. Oh, I know about ache in the heart. <laughs> I write books on ache in the heart. I got married quite late in life, right? So most of my life, and I have many relationships, and they just hit the wall, and I just think, Lord, what's going on? And couldn't understand. And I, and I used to carry this emptiness in my heart. And then when I got married, I knew, I knew what, I knew the emptiness, this theory, right? I, so when I got married, my emptiness has been resolved to a point, but not completely, and it never will be. And I, if it was, I'd be worried because I'd be turning my wife into an idol. But we have this very good relationship where we, we just love each other incredibly. We miss each other crazy from being away. But we know that we're not God to each other, and we know our ultimate fulfillment is in God. And, you know, just a little hint on relationships. When you pray together... You will do more for your relationship than any amount of dating or whatever. You know, I used to find we'd, we'd pray, and after we'd pray, I always want to give her a kiss and a cuddle. There's, some, there's something beautiful that, because I'm touching into this divine plan that God has for me. And my wife is directly part of this journey. We're going together. And that's why much of my ache was fulfilled, but still, it's never completely filled. Pope Benedict says this, Authentic beauty unlocks the yearning of the human heart, the profound desire to know what does this mean, to love, to reach for the beyond. 
If we acknowledge that beauty touches us intimately, that it wounds us, it opens our eyes, then we rediscover the joy of seeing a simple thing like a rainbow, being part of a grasping of a profound meaning of our existence, the mystery of God of which we are a part. So, you know, beneath our ordinary everyday life, you know, we, we, okay, okay, we desire for money and we, when you're young, you can't wait till Friday night, right? And we have the weekend and all that kind of stuff. But beneath all that, there's a deeper desire that calls us to something big and is put there by God. Desire is part of our design. And if we follow it through its fullness, we will reach our destiny. So that's where we get our three Ds from. The Greeks, this yearning, this heart, this yearning of the heart, this ache of the heart, the Greeks call this eros, E-R-O-S, eros. And this is the word in English that we get from erotic. So if we're to understand this concept correctly, we must not stop at just our own lustful distortions and we live in this very erotic, erotic-sized culture. We must reclaim the full nobility of Eros, of how God created it. John Paul II says, If we stop at the distortions of lust... We do not experience that fullness of eros, which implies the upward impulse of the human spirit towards what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. So that is what is erotic, will become true, good and beautiful. That's what, that's what real love is. You don't have to marry the most beautiful woman to think she's the most beautiful woman in the world. Because you see the true, the good and the beauty that nobody else has in her unique way. Guys, you've got to get this. Really, it's a big, big problem because we've been educated so badly the other way. Look for the beauty, you know, all this kind of, we, we've got to step out of that because it won't fulfill you. You'll become a serial lover, one after the next, after the next, after the next. And you have all met blokes in their late age and still trying to drive flashy cars and impress women and have all these women around them and you just think, it's sad, it's tragedy. You're wasting your life. You just missed it because they don't understand this very basic concept that the desire for our sexuality being put there by God for him. Everything else won't bring you happiness. It'll bring you... Think about it. If Satan... He hates God and he's trying to destroy God. And God puts in our sexual desire as the number one means to send us to holiness. What is Satan going to do? He's going to attack sexuality. That's what he's done. Look at the mess of our culture. Look at the... It's just madness, man. It's crazy. I don't have to tell you, you know. So we have to be aware of these things. A little bit of awareness, a little bit of knowledge goes a long way from making bad mistakes. We're our worst enemies sometimes in the decisions we make. Okay, 
Pope Benedict, again, on this topic of eros. Says, eros is the desire in us that seeks God. In the journey of this life, eros is meant to provide not just a fleeting pleasure, but a certain foretaste of the pinnacle of our existence, of that beatitude. What's the beatitude? The supreme bliss and happiness of which our whole being yearns. Have you ever met a person who says, I'm completely satisfied with my life? <laughs> they don't really exist, do they? The only people who exist who know, who understand this and say, well, I'm doing the best I can, so I'm happy, I'm satisfied with my life. But, you know, we're all out there looking. Just, just look at the pop stars. Are they fulfilled? They've got money. They've got sex. They've got power. They've got fame. And they're the most unhappy people. So many of them die of overdose. I mean, I, I just look at, I grew up with the Michael Jackson era, and I just look at that, and it's just a tragedy. See this, this brilliant talent, just, and you just think, oh my goodness. You know, I, I, get, I get on my thing about X Factor, right? Because I'm a muso, and I love all the music and stuff, and it's great. But I tell you what, I will not want my kids on X Factor. Why? Because it tells them, to be loved, I've got to be great, I've got to be the best, I've got to be the singer, I've got to look good, I wear the right clothes, I've got the right moves, and... Oh, it's just lies, lies, lies. And I look at these young kids and I think, oh my gosh, in 20 years' time, your life is going to be a tragedy if you keep this mentality up. Teach your kids to deal with failure. Deal with failure. That's where the real wisdom is. That's where they'll get their happiness. That's where they'll walk down the street and kick their feet for joy. Anyway, we're diverting. <clears throat> I'll get off my horse. Um, I love this. C.S. Lewis. I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Brilliant, huh? Typical C.S. Lewis. Short, to the point, boom. So, we acknowledge we have this ache in the heart for something more. But where do we take this ache? It's really important how we deal with it. Father Peter Cameron says, There is no escape from the burning desire within us for the true, the good, and the beautiful. Each of us lives with an unextinguishable expectation that life is supposed to make sense and satisfy us deeply. You agree? Yeah? But just where does this universal expectation for personal fulfillment come from? It isn't something that we drum up and manufacture on our own. Rather, this burning yearning is incorporated into our divine design. In other words, God made us like that. And depending on where you direct it, it will lead you either to torment of pain or torrent of love. <laughs> I love that. Torment of pain or torrent of love. It will either consume you or consummate you. Great stuff, isn't it? Some of these people just really have seen it. Makes me realise how many years I've been living in the dark, you know. So what we do then with this ache in our heart is no small matter. It's no footnote in the grand scheme of design of things. 
what we do with eros and where we take it is precisely what determines the grand scheme of things in each of our lives. Pope Benedict says this, the aching desire that man experiences is like a signature imprinted with fire in his soul and body by the creator himself. Are you getting this? I know it's sort of deep stuff, but when you start to see it, you, get, you start to get excited. You start to thinking, oh my goodness, my thinking's been so twisted around, you know? Okay. Christopher West does it brilliantly. He describes what we do with this desire in three ways. He calls it the three Gospels. He calls it gospel, inverted commas, because people live out their life with this kind of uh, philosophy, if you like, or, or approach. What do we do with our inner hunger? First one, he says, one approach is called the starvation gospel. And this is the rule-obsessed gospel where desire itself is bad. People say, you shouldn't be experiencing that. You shouldn't be hungering for that. You're a bad person, right? And unfortunately, this has made its way into many Christian circles. And um, it's, it's not authentic Christianity. It's a kind of moralism or um, rigorism that is a false version of Christianity. And it's largely responsible for the world's rejection of the church. If you're going to sell that message of what church is, people are going to say, I don't want that. Let me give you an example. We all know pop star Madonna, right? This is what, these are her words. I was raised in a very Catholic house. So religion was a big part of my life. Why did I break all the rules? Because the rules didn't make any sense. That's why. Another tragedy story. You just say, oh my goodness. She's been sold this kind of gospel. It doesn't make any sense. I'm going to rebel. And when I have a press conference, I'm going to rip open my blouse and shock the world, which she did on many occasions, right? That's the kind of thing. That's what we're talking about. If you don't channel that in the right direction, it will derail you. Pope Benedict says, Admittedly, forms of rigorism have repeatedly gained ground in Christianity. And the tendency towards negative appraisal of sexuality also found its way into the church. The influence of these distortions has warped and intimidated people. Pope Benedict said that. Okay, the second gospel is the fast food gospel, as Christopher West calls it. Right? The fast food gospel is the promise of immediate gratification through reckless indulgence of desire. E.g., most of the world. <laughs> the hunger of eros eventually becomes so painful that the prospect of relief, wherever it can be found, trumps all fear of breaking the rules. You can't suppress this. If you try and suppress it, it's going to just come out. And so if you do, it, it'll come out in negative forms. 
And that's why the fast food culture, which is the promise of immediate gratification through reckless indulgence of desire, inevitably wins large numbers of converts from the starvation diet. So people who start living the starvation diet are highly likely to actually at some point in their life turn to a fast food diet because they cannot handle putting a lid on it anymore. Pope Benedict again. The heart's thirst and the body's longing cannot be eliminated. Thus, man unknowingly stretches out in search of the infinite. We've got infinite desires and so we're looking for the infinite. But if we start trying to find it in the finite, problem. Man unknowingly stretches out in search of the infinite, but in misguided directions. It's Pope Benedict. In drugs, in sexuality lived in a disordered manner, in all-encompassing technologies, in success at any cost. How many fathers out there are working seven days a week saying and justifying it, oh, I work because I provide for my family. They're not communicating with their kids. Gentlemen, we have to watch that. And even deceptive forms of religiosity. C.S. Lewis says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and the ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. James Smith says that marketeers have found out the way to our heart because they get it. They know the power of sex. They rightly understand that at our root we are erotic creatures, creatures who are orientated primarily by love, passion and desire. And they know how to directly tap into this. More examples of this. Woody Allen. You know Woody Allen, right? He says, sex without love is a meaningless experience. But as far as meaningless experiences go, it's pretty damn good. So, you know, again, selling ourselves short. We have an infinite hunger, but we're settling for a finite answer. Listen to this. Hugh Hefner, you know, or no, you might not remember. You know who Hugh Hefner is, right? He's the founder of Playboy magazine, right? And he's built this Playboy mansion all his life, and he has all these, you know, beautiful women in there, scantily clad, and they're all supposed to be his girlfriend and all of this, right? It, it's, it's pathetic. But anyway, this is what he says. It's the key to my life, the need to feel loved. He's talking about his Playboy mansion. I think I've been searching to fill that hole that was left in early childhood. Ah, oh, another tragic story. Now you see him. He's an old man. They tell, they've reportedly got venereal disease. He pays women to say that they're his girlfriend. And it's just pathetic. And you just think, you poor bugger. He's, you know, he's still stuck in the finite, even in his old age. Okay. So what gospel should we be living? We should be living the banquet gospel. The conviction that we are created for ecstasy. And this is exactly what God wants to give us. 
Scripture says, The kingdom of heaven may be likened like a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Behold, I have prepared my banquet and everything is ready. Come to the feast. And we live this feast in every Eucharistic Mass, in ready for the ultimate feast. Psalm 63 says, My soul shall be satisfied as with a banquet. We're talking about food. It's a real connection there with the Eucharist. We'll talk more about this afternoon. Christianity is the religion that says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. We're not just talking about drink and food. We're talking about hunger and thirst, the deepest hunger and thirst of who we are in our hearts. Even in the Catechism, paragraph 20 says, The desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God for God. And God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. Pope Francis says the Christian is one who carries within himself a great desire, a profound desire. And then he goes on to say, how poor are those who lack desire? He's just snuffed it out, you know. It's like the starvation gospel. Hardline, fundamentalist Christian who thinks he's living God's will and is so far from it. He's too busy judging everybody else. Please don't judge the Holy Father while I'm on the topic. Please, please, please do not get in caught up in all this stuff. Do not attack and to criticize the Holy Father. If ever we need security in the church and unity, it is now. And God gives us this Pope. And if there's things about this Pope you don't understand, then be like Mary. Pray and humble heart and ponder the truths in your heart silently. Do not get on the internet and blast every feeling, expression. It's just it's so wrong. And so many people, so full of self-righteousness. On Judgment Day, the Lord's going to be very tough on them. Anyway, I won't get into that. Lord's mercy is there to save us. But it's a big thing with me because I'm going to tell you because it is important. You see, what's going to happen on Judgment Day? Judgment Day, we're going to go before the Lord. And if we've had a whole life of saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I repent, right? It's going to be very easy because on Judgment Day, we're all going to show what we've done and the effects of what we've done. It's going to be pretty scary, right? But don't fear. God loves, right? And he's merciful. And nothing you have done that he can't forgive, providing... You humbly repent and trust. You must trust in his love. You've got to trust that he's guiding the church. If you think that the, the God has given us a bad pope or something, you, you've, you haven't got any faith. Your faith is dead already. Anyway, so what's going to happen? If you're a fundamentalist, you're going to walk up, God, I've ticked all the boxes. You've got to let me in. And I said, well, actually, no. Look at all that. This was the consequence. That was not my will. This, this, thing. Ah. <gasps> You're either going to do one or two things. You're going to say, oh, now, hang on, God. That's not fair. That's not fair because I tried to keep all the rules. and blah, blah, blah. No future in that. I've been there, believe me. Or the other way is you're going to apply yourself to exactly what you've been doing all your life. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. Oh, I'm wrong. Send myself to hell. 
I can't go to you, Lord. I'm too much of a sinner. But, but, but wait, wait, I've got mercy. We send ourselves to hell. So trust and humble repentance. It's the basic message of the gospel. Repent and believe. It's not rocket science. Anyway, we're diverting. Sorry. Let's carry on. Um, Pope Benedict. Psalm 63 helps us to enter into the heart of the matter. Oh God, my God, I long at the break of day. My soul thirsts for you. My body pines for you like a dry land without water. Not only my soul, but even every fibre of my flesh is made to find its fulfilment in God. This is Pope Benedict. And this tension cannot ever be erased from man's heart. Christianity takes desire seriously. This is John Eldridge. Christianity refuses to budge from the fact that man was made for pleasure. That his beginning and end is a paradise. We are made for bliss and we must have it one way or another. Despite all the widespread impressions to the contrary, we must impress this truth upon our souls and allow it to settle into our bones. Christianity is the religion of desire. It's the religion that redeems eros. It redeems this ache in the heart. And its saints are the one who have had the courage to feel the abyss longing in their souls and in their bodies and to open that longing to the groaning in prayer, to the one who alone can heal their wound of love. Saints teach. Look at look at the um, Margaret of what is it? I can't read it there. Margaret Margaret Corona. Look, she's you can like a bliss there. I'll show you some other saints later that have this bliss because they've discovered this. Saint Therese of Lisieux says this. I know, O oh my God, that the more you give to me, the more you make me desire. Isn't it amazing? The more we get, the more we desire. Why do we have this infinite hunger? Because God put it there. I feel in my heart immense desires. My desires and longings reach even unto infinity. And I know that Jesus would not inspire the longings I feel unless he wanted to grant them. For God cannot inspire unrealizable desires. Wow. Let's end with a quote from St. Teresa of Avila. She's commenting on that Song of Songs, which is like the erotic love poetry in the Bible. The king seems to refuse nothing to the bride. Well, then let her drink. Drink as much as she desires and get drunk on these wines in the cellar of God. Let her enjoy these joys. Wonder at these great things and not fear to lose her life through drinking much more than her weak nature enables her to do. Let her die at last in this paradise of delights, blessed death that makes one live in such a way. That was Paul Allard with Theology of the Body Part 1, Eros and Desire. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit Cradio.org. Thought you.